Welcome to a summer special from the British Broadcasting Century podcast. This is Paul Carenza. Yes, our timeline may have reached February 1923 at the appointment of Peter Eckersley as chief engineer, but this is the first of three summer special episodes in which we leap ahead. We hurtle forward to the late 20s in this episode, the Radio Girls of Savoy Hill, with our guest Sarah Jane Stratford. She was the one who said, no, you must not talk at people. You must speak as though you're having a conversation and make people feel as though you are there in the room with them. And in, indeed, it was this instant sea change. Sarah Jane Stratford's novel Radio Girls is highly recommended. You'll hear me plug it a plenty on this episode. Plenty more from her to come here on the Escapist Summer Specials, celebrating 50 episodes, the half century of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello, Paul Carenza here, you there. Happy summer to you. Hope you're dealing with the heat okay, let alone the political climate. Let's not even go there. We're here to escape into the past, aren't we? We're 50 episodes in. Thank you for joining us. If you've been here since the beginning, hurrah for you. If you haven't been here since the beginning, you can go back and experience the full works of the history of British broadcasting from way back even before Marconi, and onward through to the BBC being founded. And last episode, we hired a chief engineer in Peter Eckersley. His name will crop up also this time as we go into the late 1920s. You see, normally we go slower than many other podcasts might. Others would have done hundreds of podcast episodes in the time that we've taken to reach 50. But we polish our episodes. We take our time. Also, it's only me here, so and I've got other work to do. But thank you for joining us uh, for the Half Century of the British Broadcasting Century. On this episode, though, it's summer break time, so we're doing less on the timeline that we are we're telling, the chronology of early 1923, when the BBC numbered just 15 employees. Listeners in the tens of thousands. Not just the tens, that was even earlier in the podcast. But no, less than 1% of the population were listening to the BBC in early 1923, where we'd been dwelling for some time. But for the next three episodes, we are instead going to leap ahead to a bigger, more fulsome BBC, looking at three later eras. So next time, we're going for Britain's earliest black broadcasters. After that, we'll be followed by the BBC and World War II. Those are with our guests Stephen Bourne and Edward Sturton. If you are looking for some summer holiday poolside or garden reading, then their books are highly recommended to you. Stephen Bourne has got history books uh, for you, uh, various books. Black Poppies is fantastic, Britain's Black Community in the Great War. Uh, he'll be talking next time about Evelyn Dove. If you want to do some advanced reading, Evelyn Dove, Britain's Black Cabaret Queen is uh, Stephen's book title. Um, or he's also got um, a book called Deeper the Roots, Trailblazers Who Changed Black British Theatre. And he'll be telling us loads of stuff that you will not find anywhere else about the early black broadcasters here in Britain. Edward Sturton's book, you may be familiar with, Auntie's War. Uh, if you've not read it, that's a cracker as well. And you can read that, enjoy that uh, while the summer heat swelters down upon you. Also, though, for some escapist summer fiction. If you've not read Radio Girls by Sarah Jane Stratford, you're in for a treat. Seek it out. I know you'll want to. 
after this episode. So this is a longer form chat in our specials. We generally spend longer and we chat longer to a guest. Uh, So Sarah Jane Stratford brings us to the late 1920s. It's a time when licenses were in the millions. BBC staff were now populating Savoy Hill. And in her novel, Sarah Jane Stratford introduces us to the fictitious Maisie Musgrave, who works in the department of the real-life pioneer Hilda Matheson. Now, we've not introduced Hilda Matheson properly on the podcast, though her name has come up. I've been saving it for when we reach 1926, but that will be a while yet, given our timeline and our slowness to tell you this story the right way. So, I've been holding back Sarah Jane's interview for some time. Apologies, Sarah Jane. Uh, I've just now realised that we're never going to reach 1926 uh, in the next couple of years. So, you've been waiting long enough, Sarah Jane. So we're leaping ahead to you. Hilda Matheson, broadcasting pioneer. I was drawn to, as I'm writing my novel, Auntie and Uncles, which is due out later this year, all being well. So I'm writing about her. Sarah Jane has written about her fantastically. I can only dream of writing as well as Sarah Jane has in her novel. So the more you know about Hilda, the more you can see why she is such a great character for novelists, really. I'll introduce Hilda properly uh, as we go. But for now, ladies and gents and everyone in between... Let's meet Sarah Jane Stratford. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Delighted to welcome Sarah Jane Stratford. Hooray for you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. No worries. Well, delighted. I've been wanting to get you on this podcast for some time because your fantastic book, which I'm well aware is not your most recent book, uh, and I'm having to, you're having to delve into the past a little bit to remember about writing this book, I'm sure. But Radio Girls is your brilliant book, and I cannot recommend it enough. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, what, what was your way into this story then? Because this is BBC 1920s. Uh, anyone who's really discovered, I think, this area and genre and, and era of history uh, loves it. But we often approach it from different angles and find our way into it. What was it for you? For me, it was absolutely 100% Hilda Matheson. Mm. And so I've, I've always been interested in the time period uh, particularly for women, because you know it, it, it was a time when women were entering professions, um, you know, just be- becoming you know more active in the in the public in public in the public eye, etc. And uh, I was you know, just doing a bit of casual research, mostly on women in journalism, as you do, and I came across this name and so you know Hilda Matheson uh, first director of talks BBC and I thought you know I've I've read a fair bit about the time period and I sort of thought I knew at least some of the you know main talking points about the history and I've never heard of this woman so I started reading up on her and yeah like my jaw just kept dropping and dropping I mean she, she was she was just so incredible you know, everything about her, uh, you know, the fact that she'd worked for MI6 during the First World War, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, <laughs> that she worked for Lady Astor, and that then you know, she was personally recruited by John Reith to be the first director of talks at the BBC. And then after that, she wrote the first ever book on broadcasting, and she wrote at least sort of a precise of how wartime propaganda ought to go, which to a large extent, even though she wrote it in uh, 1940, was followed virtually to the end of the Second World War. 
and 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 then in all this, she has this torrid two-year affair with Peter Sackville West. Like, how is this woman mm. not hugely famous? Yeah, she she should be on the curriculum. Yeah, so, absolutely. And you've you've done your bit to change that totally and get her out there because, and as you said, you know, Vita Sackville West, and of course, then she's who she is romantically linked to Virginia Woolf and Hilda Matheson's. I think it was in her first job as a spy hired by Lawrence of Arabia. And he, you know, yeah. she's just surrounded by these famous people that we do know, but we should. Know oh, right, I didn't even mention the TV yeah. aspect. Yes, and of course, Virginia Woolf absolutely loathed her. Because of Peter Sackville West. That was great. It it does seem like this era, I don't know, it just seems you could walk down a street in London and bump into 10 different names that, and throughout the book, you've got, you know, H.G. Wells dropping in to do some uh, broadcasting and then, oh, someone's not available. Let's get E.M. Forster in. He's just finished doing uh, Passage of India. And yeah, it's just like you throw a rock and hit a celebrity back then. Well, and in fact, I, I wasn't exaggerating. I, I did some research. Uh, you know, the BBC archives are pretty excellent. Uh, and, and of course, I, actually, a lot of that is just pure luck. It was more that nobody got around to binning things. Mm. <laughs> well, thank goodness. <laughs> but um, but yes, you know, you look at you know, sort of you know, just just a week's schedule, and like, good lord, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like one luminary after another, like. All right. Um, And and indeed, of course, most of these people were living in Bloomsbury, you know, in and around London. And, you know, yeah, it was it was really not a problem for them to just, you know, come in and like, oh, sure, I'll rattle off a little half hour chat. Why not? I can do that in between drinks. No problem. (laughs) Yeah, and it does. It does seem maybe I don't know. It's, it's the glamour of the era, perhaps. But it seems like these were the formative years of the BBC. When yeah, they're getting that idea of of what a half hour, you know, a modern day Radio Four show is like. And and, mm-hmm. and Hilda Matheson's role, it seems, in in making talks not these rather academic lectures, but something that you really want to listen to and conversational and really setting the mould for modern day radio, I think. Well, well, this is it. This is absolutely it. I mean, we would not have Radio 4 as we know it without her. And you're really, I mean, any, uh, you know, in the States, it's national public radio. I mean, you know, all, all, all these formats, you know, she was the one who said, no, you must not talk at people you must speak as though you're having a conversation and make people feel as though you are there in the room with them. And in, indeed, it was this instant sea change, you know, and, and she saw so many opportunities. Like, well, you know, look, why, why not bring to people that which they could not otherwise have access? You know, and why, just because young people are perhaps not terribly literate why not have literary programs why not have lots of poetry reading Mm. and 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 of course you know one of the things that was so lovely was that librarians started writing her letters saying you know uh, our our circulation has doubled quadrupled your people coming in asking for books of poetry and wanting to set up like poetry clubs at the library you know, it, and these were people, who, you know, many of whom had left school at 12, but they heard this on the wireless and they got inspired. Mm, yeah. 
It's, I mean, I think it's just beautiful. Is there anything you could tell us about how you uh, your research for this book? Because I know you spoke to Kate Murphy, who we've had on the podcast already. And I, she was wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And the BBC Archive Centre in Caversham. Anything else that you could tell us about how, how do you begin to explore and research a thing like this? Oh, goodness. I, you, you know, I mean, I was just I was very, very lucky. And uh, one of the things that was just you know, sort of a, almost a joke a stroke of luck. I had two. Uh, one was, so when I was in London, it just so happened that uh, the Science Museum opened, I mean, I think it was that same week they opened this exhibit on broadcasting. Ah. And and so it had like uh, the original wirelesses, um, a lot of the original broadcasting equipment and one of the curators was very kind and gave me about 40 minutes of his time and answered questions and like walked me through and was explaining this is what this does this is what this does so that I have a scene in the book where they go to uh, what's now Marconi house and and they're looking at um, one of the pieces of machinery and I was able to describe well yes that you know th this is this is what it is and this is how it what it looks like because I'd actually seen it so that was that was just a gift then the other the other odd thing that happened was that um, I was living in New York when I did the bulk of the writing and I discovered that um, Vita Sackville West's papers and letters were all at Yale uh -huh. okay well that's I don't know what they're doing there but that was just a short train ride so I could read Hilda's letters to her. Brilliant. And that gave me Hilda's voice. I mean, I'd already had a very strong sense of it just, you know, just by reading. I mean, because the archive and there were her notes, there were her memo, memos, um, telegrams, etc. But reading these personal letters, even though her handwriting was kind of awful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it it was it was just it was it was awe inspiring. I mean, it almost chokes me up now thinking yeah. about. It. Oh, fabulous. So Hilda Matheson, in a nutshell, if you've not picked up already, yeah, a spy in World War One, hired by Lawrence of Arabia, indeed. She worked in Italy uh, there, uh, just dealing with the whole spy game in World War One. She then became secretary to Nancy Astor, who was the first female MP to take a seat in the House of Commons. Then, uh, while hosting one of Lady Astor's at-home soirees, which were organised by Hilda Matheson for her boss there, you know, she'd invite the great and good of London, the movie and shakers, especially women who could now vote. And one guest was a rather nervous John Reith. Reith met Matheson, was really struck by her, thought she's incredible, and tried to hire her. Lady Astor essentially pushed Hilda Matheson towards John Reith and said, yes, you need to go there and work for him at the BBC. Matheson was a bit reluctant, but Reith poached her. She joined the BBC and Matheson quickly rose to become the first ever director of talks, uh, just as the Beeb became a corporation. So she helped design talk radio from the ground up. This informal style, less lecturely than previously, but engaging the listener. Uh, and she had this fan fascinating private life as well, this relationship with Vita Sackville West. After Vita had famously had a relationship with Virginia Woolf, which you can see fictionalised in the film uh, Vita and Virginia. So, yeah, you, we go back into the realms of fiction, but these real-life characters 
Well, they leap out the pages of history books. I'm sure you'll agree. The Savoy Hill era, I think, is marvellously joyous. Of course, on our timeline in the podcast, we're in pre-Savoy Hill era. Magnet House is where the BBC currently resides. If you've joined us on patreon.com slash porkerenza, thank you for helping support the podcast. Uh, there now, you can see I've just uh, released, a, in a couple of weeks ago, a, a walk that I've done from Magnet House, as it was, it's now flats, uh, to, or it's offices actually, uh, to Marconi House. It's about eight minutes walk away, central London, and that is the walk that Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis did night after night in early 1923. They would, by day, be at BBC HQ at Magnet House as director of programmes and, and deputy. But by night, they would transform like Del Boy and Rodney running through the streets of London and becoming Batman and Robin. They would become Uncle Arthur and Uncle Caractacus. And you can see the walk in London as it is now on a very rainy day when I filmed it from Magnet uh, House to Marconi House. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza, £5 a month. Uh, cancel any time, but that's where the videos reside. If you wish to see that, thank you for supporting and keeping us in web hosting and books. That's what it goes towards. Hilda Matheson, though, she was only ever at Savoy Hill. She arrived after Magnet House. She left before Broadcasting House. Arguably, though, as I put to Sarah Jane Stratford, when Hilda Matheson left the BBC, I think she was just getting going. Hilda Matheson doesn't stay at the BBC, unfortunately. Ends rather abruptly. Um, when you've got it, you've done a whole load of, you know, chapters on, on, on how that happened and the controversy thing and her arguments with Reith. And it's fascinating. Great to see it fictionalised here. Um, but if she had stayed on into the through the 30s, I mean, this is the massive question, but is that a missed opportunity? How different the BBC could have been and how different, I mean, even British history could have been if someone like her had risen through the ranks instead of sadly left the BBC? Right. So uh, the short answer is uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's, and that's not, not actually just my opinion. I, I mean, it's it's been, you know, other people have written about this and felt that, you know, what she was establishing, uh, the sort of people she was bringing on, the sort of programming she she was um, setting up, you know, all would have been more hard hitting, more granularly uh, educational. You know, she was a very strong progressive, and you know, she was well educated. You know, very liberal. Um, you know, you know, very, very, very much a a feminist, of uh, a, a feminist of that era, but a feminist, and very much an anti-fascist. To a certain extent, she could see which way the wind was blowing, and it concerned her. Mm. And uh, you know, not for nothing. I mean, some years later, um, you know, Goebbels said, you know, if during the uh, beer hall pooch, which I can never pronounce it, I think that was that, a, that was a good go. I like it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, if we'd seized state radio, it would have gone very differently, and that's true. And you know, Hilda was someone who recognized, yes, this is the power of the media. The media can really shape opinion and in in a way that perhaps newspapers cannot there is maybe something about broadcasting that is a little bit different and now look who knows really if she'd been able to carry 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 things through would she have changed minds would she have 
know, shaped the opinions of you know people who were more inclined to think, oh well, you know, this this Hitler, he seems to have the right idea. Actually, mm. you know, we don't we don't we don't really know, but we can see that she she was all about let's get more progressive, you know, let's get more hard hitting, let's get more detailed. And just at the time when Reith was saying, well, actually, no, no, I think we need to retrench. I think we need to be more conservative. Let's focus more on light entertainment. You know, let's not confuse people with lots of debate. Uh, at, you know, and arguably, well, this was a time when, no, we needed to have more debate and, you know, more hard-hitting discussion. But she wasn't given the opportunity. We're taking the story very slowly in this podcast. We're looking ahead years now, but <laughs> um, but a quick summary for those who aren't aware of the BBC and and fascism. These this very light topic, very light. Um, but you've got so you've got uh, Hilda Matheson, who's very progressive. Uh, anti-fascist and in your book in fact you've got this whole um, conspiracy and a chase and all sorts of things which I love to think happened let's assume it did that would be much better um, uh, but you've got Reith then who for a while was praising Hitler in in the early 30s as to the, that he got things done um, mm-hmm. and you've got Peter Eckersley who we've talked about a lot on this podcast because you know the first voice of regular broadcasting before the BBC joined as chief engineer and basically effectively sacked or resigned because of was having an affair with a married woman. And, and then when Eckersley quit the BBC, he seems to have gone the other way. You've got Hilda Matheson, who was a spy in the First World War and uh, in the Second World War, I think maybe did a small work at the Secret Service with the Joint Broadcasting Committee, while Peter Eckersley was in Germany, just trying to pocket as much money as he could. And then I think regretted it. But you see the influence of just like those three people, Reith, Eckersley and Matheson, the three big uh, names at the BBC and these brushes with fascism and anti-fascism they had in, in the 30s. Is, it's incredible that we aren't talking about this more, I think. No, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know why it hasn't been more widely discussed. Um, I, and certainly when Radio Girls first came out, I mean, I was contacted by a few people, you know, mostly uh, younger people working at the BBC who said, I cannot believe I've never heard of her. Mm. I've never heard of you know, some of what she did, what she dealt with. She started a program that runs to this very day, the week in West- Westminster. Mm. Um and it was very different at the time. It was meant to be educational um, because women had recently gotten you know, full suffrage. And she felt, well, you know, it's important for women to understand how does parliament work? You know, because yeah. her feeling was, well, you know, if the ordinary person understands how their government functions, then they're a better citizen. Mm. then they they're more engaged they care more they're they're going to be a better voter mm. and you know this yeah <laughs> was fairly critical uh you know so the program has changed over the years but you know it was it was just extraordinary to me that yes so many people did not know and did not know all she did and did not know that she wrote this book about broadcasting. And, you know, one of the things she said in the book is that, you know, broadcasting's tricky you know, because it can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil. I mean, 
a state-run broadcasting system you know, can, can be a wonderful educational augmentation, but it can also be a tool for dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I, I find it, I mean, it's fascinating. And I think that I think I, more and more I think of this, I don't think this is history. I think this is, is present day because you look at the fact that Hilda Matheson was there as, you know, as women's suffrage and, and the uh, and equal votes were starting to come in. Um, and, you know, she, the fact she was secretary to the first uh, woman MP to take a seat in Parliament, Lady oh, Astor. Oh, yes. Uh, all of those things. She was right there and doing her bit and really um, bringing some sense of, I don't know, if not full equality, but some sense of that to the radio and to broadcasting as a whole. And, I, I you know, I try, try and keep this podcast light. And also I, this will be, uh, our conversation will be going out in a few months' time. But as we record this, without wanting to bring it all doom and gloom, Afghanistan today is literally uh, falling to the Taliban and women in leadership is suddenly maybe potentially no longer happening, education going. Um, and yet broadcasting is more, you know, we are able now for the first time to be seeing the, the downfall of a country uh, on the news. We're seeing people, uh, women broadcasting on their phones uh, as they are potentially losing their rights there and we're seeing i don't know i mean my mind blows i don't i don't even know what point i'm making but the fact that you can see the technology is gaining so much equality that we had then uh is still not widespread across the entire world but it's such these are such big issues that are still um changing and going out on a daily basis no completely you know this is the other uh thing that's been so yeah, both gratifying, but sometimes a little disheartening is that, you know, I've had people write to me and say, this book just doesn't feel like history. It feels very current, but not necessarily in a good way in that, you know, the power, we see the power, say, of the internet, but we also see, you know, how it can be harnessed and used to such damaging purpose. Mm. And you really, I, I feel like, you know, look, the, the lesson Hilda was trying to impart is, well, we have to be vigilant. We have to be aware. We have to pay attention. We have to care. Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing, you know, she, she always cared. And, you know, I think the, you know, this is ultimately what got her in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, but in fact, you know, it it didn't stop her. I mean, she, you know, she carried on. I mean, even after she was forced to resign, you know, she continued trying to, you know, do, you know, to yes, to to um, to educate, to get people interested, but also to to have people see, like, well, that this is why this is why you should care. Mm. And, you know, I think that is that that's that's a difficult thing to do. It was a tall order. But uh, she uh, you know, she she felt that it was important and, you know, she wasn't going to give up. I'm going to I'm going to quote to you now a bit of your own book, um, because I was reading this bit and this feels, again, so current uh, in terms of issues of balance. And these questions still hanging over the BBC as to how balanced they can be and accusations mm. of bias. 
So I was reading this. It's page 307 for those reading along. Um, uh, so uh, it says, ask, ask every third person on Oxford Street. They'll tell you the BBC is a load of Bolshevist propaganda. And every next third person will insist it's a government mouthpiece. And still today, that is almost pretty much the case. I mean, you know, substitute Bolshevist there for I don't know, socialist, or whatever it might be. But I hear people saying the BBC is so left wing. How can you not see it is so left wing? And other people saying the BBC is just this mouthpiece for whatever the government tell you, whether it's about vaccines, whether it's about Brexit. Um, it's such a it seems to be this filter for whatever the big issue is in Britain today. We still seem to be able as a country to, you know, throw rocks at the BBC and say, see, they're doing it wrong. How can't they get balance right 100 years on? And I mean, arguably, if both left and right wing think that the other it's not you know, doing the right thing for them, then maybe it's got the right idea. I don't know. I mean, these are those were questions then. And yes, I, I think they still are. And then, you know, hopefully the BBC will carry on and then these questions will endure um yeah we'll 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 see <laughs> to yeah. be continued of course yeah <laughs> of course the bbc will carry on in some form but let's uh, go from the future back to the even further back in the past from the late 1920s let's go to the early 1920s and dwell for a little while in our timeline on the podcast which we're telling uh, episode by episode february 1923 is where we've reached and in terms of the radio girls at the bbc of which we're talking this time yeah they were arriving by the coach load in february of 1923 so last episode we featured the hiring of peter eckersley as chief engineer and walter c smith as publicity manager but the typing pool was growing and growing as well bear in mind this is still a one-room bbc at magnet house 15 or so typists and clerks filling that one room in February of 1923. 10 or so mail sorters around this central table of chaos and notes and fan mail and requests to broadcast and applications for jobs that maybe they didn't even know what they'd need yet. But among the people who were there at the time, Dorothy Knight arrived in February 1923, a typist personally recommended to John Reith who said everybody was expected to take a hand with everything. Good on you, Dorothy Knight. There was a new accountant, a Mr Harley. He had a new assistant, Miss Mallinson. Also that month, you've got Lillian Taylor starting as a clerk in the programmes department, uh, whose interview uh, consisted of being shown Magnet House and then being told, you'll do, can you start now? And she did. You've also got Mrs. H. Esmond. Uh, she was a typist who came from Marconi Company, uh, arrived February the 12th, doing the same job she did at Marconi's, really, just moved up the street, uh, copying down the news bulletins from dictation was actually her job. And um, she then perhaps goes on to pioneer a new news department, uh, according to some bits I've read. She actually left quite a while later, June 1937, when she left she was told that she was the longest-serving employee, really the only one from the early days of 1923 still standing, although John Reith, I think, was still hanging around at that point. In charge of all of these early radio girls was the legendary Caroline Banks. Now, she started in February 23 as well, lasted until 1931. She was 26 years old when she began, and she's women's staff supervisor. She oversaw, to begin with, a dozen female staff. When she left, though, she oversaw a department of 200 female typists and clerks. She left to marry, as was the way back then, because the marriage bar at the BBC meant if you would wish to get wed, then unfortunately, generally speaking, you left the corporation. 
Well, let's have more from Sarah Jane Stratford then, because of all of the radio girls at the BBC in the 1920s, in amongst these real-life characters like Hilda Matheson and John Reith and many others that Sarah Jane Stratford has put on the pages of her novel, the star of that book is fictitious. One thing I've not said, of course, is that we talk about Hilda Matheson, uh, but actually the hero of the book is, uh, is, is not necessarily even, even Hilda, but our main character, our protagonist, Maisie Musgrave. You know, now... Uh, f- fictitious, generally speaking, um, yes. I, I, I guess. But yes, is yes. is this a case of the author writing herself into the book? May I ask? <laughs> because uh, we have a, someone of a who's crossed the Atlantic to. I mean, what, I mean, what a marvelous thing that you can make yourself. I don't know if that is you or not, but I just love no, this no, idea no, that you it absolutely you know, is, is 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 not. <laughs> but, oh. uh, but no, it. I mean, that was one of those um, funny circumstances where I was having a fairly in-depth chat with my editor in very early days and she said do you know I think you're very close to Hilda and I think you are so inspired by her that actually she's going to end up being too perfect and that's going to be to the book's detriment I think you will do better to have a character who serves a bit more as an entree and feels you know a little more representative of the reader and I saw her point and as I started to work on it I I decided yes yeah I think I think that's the right thing to do um so yeah, fair enough that, that was what I did and 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 it did yes because you know then I could uh more readily because I didn't want to write you know basically a biography you know there's that's for other people to do and to do better than I could do um, you know, I, I, I know my strengths and I know my interests and, you know, I wanted to write a piece of fiction that hopefully uh, might get people interested enough that maybe they'd want to learn more, you know, and that's lovely. But, you know, in this way, I could then have, you know, yes, a fictional story sort of, you know, running tangentially with a lot of the real history. It's well. It's a great way in, and it, I think it, the the book zips along. And uh, I know that people who listen to the, this podcast and love this era, I think they're gonna if they've not read it already. And I know many have. So, um, oh, wonderful! Those who haven't, I think, need to get a get hold of a copy. I think it's it's fantastically done. And and the way that you've taken those real life characters, I've not got the exact quote, but I remember there was a thing about Reith. Um, you know the way that and the history books say about how Reith and Matheson, you know, he, he liked it enough to begin with to hire her, but very quickly. I've either regretted it or just did just clashed with her completely. And yeah. you had a line there describing about how his, his long blinks that implied he could never quite understand Matheson. And, you know, you look at any footage of Reith and he has got these really long blinks. And I think, oh, yeah, that really that was a really perceptive character trait. And just so many other things like that. that I think you've really brought these characters to life. So, yeah, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as a character, he was wonderful as you know, thinking of him as a historical person, like, oh, yeah, very mixed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you've done other books. What, Red Letter Days. Tell us a bit about Red Letter Days and, and what else you're working on uh, beyond uh, the BBC stuff. Uh, right. So Red Letter Days. So, f- funny. I mean, really, I probably should have called it Television Girls um, mm. <laughs> because <laughs> it's it's not dissimilar in that. So it's about... Uh, the blacklist 
um, the Hollywood blacklist, although it's sort of a misnomer to call it Hollywood, you know, that's that's how it's sort of known colloquially, but it was uh, the uh, discrimination against anyone perceived to have uh, communist ties or to have you know, been a member of the Communist Party in America. And this hit the entertainment industry particularly hard, uh, primarily writers. And um, I'd always been sort of interested in the era, um, but I hadn't read very deeply. And then I was curious, well, you know, what, what did women do? In this time, we, how how affected were they? And, you know, who were the women who might have been affected? And I, you know, found you know yet another exciting woman who everyone should know. It's just this woman, Hannah Weinstein, who uh, was an American who um, had been a communist at one point. Mostly, she was a socialist, but you know, she she left the states and eventually ended up in London and she set up a production company and she began this television show in 1955, The Adventures of Robin Hood. And she only hired blacklisted writers to write the scripts. Uh, They all had to write under pseudonyms, but she gave them an opportunity to continue working where otherwise you know they were struggling for work and because there were also you know a number of other people who uh left the US rather than uh, face potential prison uh primarily on trumped up charges uh so i i created a fictional character um sort of based on some of the women i read about who was a pioneering television writer because you know there were some women very few but there were some and so she comes to London and ends up working on Robin Hood and uh things go from there well Uh, it's that's still massively in our wheelhouse it's brought it's broadcasting its history and I think I know what my next uh read will be so uh, (laughs) uh thank you for that and and thank and bringing history to life and especially in our case here Savoy Hill to life radio girls and the thing is it's got all these big heavy issues, controversies and uh, fights against fascism and um, illicit homosexual affairs and things like this that were you know, frowned upon in the day. But it's such a great, it whizzes along. It's, so it's, it's big issues, but it's a light read and it's in a great way. I think it's got real depth to it at the same time. So good on you. Thank you for doing oh, that. Thank you. Thank you very much. It also has romance and good food. It does. It has a lots of romance and good food. And it does. There's lots of going out for food, isn't there? And I like that. It's lots of uh, a real taste of, well, taste. Well, I mean, look, look, that's that's the part that may have been slightly based on real life. Ah, there you go. If you're a writer going out in coffee shops, uh, you know, writing your book out and about, then, um, you know, you've got to put food in, haven't you? Absolutely. It's uh, a cracking read. Radio Girls, recommend it. And Red Letter Days as well. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah Jane Stratford. I've talked about her book plentifully, Radio Girls, it's called, and it's perfect summer reading. Next time, another special for you, Stephen Bourne on the early black British broadcasters. You don't want to miss it because he has information that I have not seen anywhere else. So really, it's a cracking episode to catch. After that, Edward Sturton on Auntie's War for our little summer season of longer form interviews with authors on broadcasting history. 
The British Broadcasting Centre is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. The original music is by Will Farmer. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at BBCentury, but you won't find us on any official BBC website because we are nothing to do with this BBC, do you hear? If you like what we do, do share, tell people about it, just retweet us, or have a conversation in your local public house about how marvellous the British Broadcasting Century podcast is. But for now, thank you for listening and stay subscribed. Stay informed, educated, entertained, and yeah, subscribe. And join us next time for another special on the early black BBC employees here on the British Broadcasting Century.